0: Welcome to the season four finale of Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists about the creative process of making music. I put out a call to my listeners to ask who should come back on the podcast for this final episode, and the chosen composer is John Brantingham. I interviewed John in episode 98 about his blog and composer training program, Art of Composing. In this episode, John talks about his mission to find a more systematic and practical way to compose, rather than just blindly experimenting.
1: I'm trying to get better with specific skills. If you can't name those skills, how can you get better at them? So that's what I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to say, well, what skill will allow me to write a piece that's five minutes long? John also shares
0: some of Gustav Mahler's orchestration techniques.
1: He's not afraid to have a, you know, 110-piece orchestra and only use the bassoon and the oboe alone for eight bars. And you know, whereas most most of us would say, if I've got a hundred-piece orchestra, I'm going to use a hundred pieces all the time.
0: Before we get started, I have a few announcements. This episode is brought to you by my generous Patreon patrons and by Lynda.com. Lynda is an online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you improve your creative, technical, and business skills. For a free 10-day trial, go to lynda.com slash quest. And that's L-Y-N-D-A. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. This week I've written a jingle for Canadian composer Daniel Bailey, who's participated in four composing quests. You can check out his music at djbaileymusic.com. Thanks, Daniel. Daniel Bailey is a lucky man with his three-year-old son. I mentioned a while back that I'd compile all my patron jingles into an album. The time has come. I've officially released Patron Jingles Volume 1, the album. You can stream it or download it for free at composerquest.bandcamp.com. If you want me to write you a jingle during Season 5 of the podcast, visit patreon.com charlie and pledge $3 or more per episode. If you can't quite afford that but still want to help support me in Season 5, every little bit counts. The $1 per episode level will get you a shout out on the podcast, and the $2 per episode level will get you a shout out, plus access to all my own songs and rare demo recordings that you've heard on this show. Thanks to all of you who've helped support this season of the show, and I'm looking forward to starting up again in October 2015. One last announcement our Minkino Film Score Fest is coming up this summer composers are currently writing scores for the videos given to them by their filmmaking partners. On July 20th, they'll hand their scores in and our orchestra will get ready to play them live at the screening. If you're in Minnesota, come join us on August 13th, 7 p.m. at Landmark Center in St. Paul. It's a free event thanks to generous grant support from the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council and the City of St. Paul. If you live somewhere else, tune in at composerquest.com for the live webcast. Again, it's at 7 p.m. Central on August 13th. Stick around till the end of this episode for the final installment of All My Musical Children, featuring a special guest. After that is another episode of Charlie's Music Production Lessons. Okay, enough announcements. Time for my talk with John Brantingham.
1: How's it going i haven't talked to you in a little while it's going good yeah it's been a while my hair's uh, a lot longer now too so <laughs> yeah it's like grown in the back i don't know true composer style <laughs> yeah yeah i know i'm like i work for no one now so yep <laughs> might as well <laughs> so how are things with you oh
0: good yeah uh this is the season finale episode of the podcast so there you go
1: i'm i'm really moving up in the world
0: (laughs) yep i put out an email to everyone saying who would you like back on the podcast and we got one response and that was for you to be back on the podcast so you (laughs) win (laughs) yeah How, how big is the list i'm curious uh i think like 400 people some listeners who found me after listening to the podcast and some people that I forced on my list friends mm-hmm. and <laughs> which was now that looking back not the best idea to um just yeah. paste everyone's email into mailchimp you know
1: yeah oh you know it's good though to have a couple people in there that that don't really care that can tell you when you did something like, hey, you just sent out an email that was completely misformatted. And Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. I got 100% of the responses. You did. I, I, feel, I feel good about that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's, it's funny how, like, in your mind, you're like, I'm probably going to get this huge wave of all oh, this. <laughs> it's like <laughs> most people just, eh, somebody else will write back. <laughs>
0: you know? Mm-hmm. So, let's see. So, last we talked on the podcast, you were just beginning your film scoring program. What kind of classes have you been taking since then?
1: Well, you know, the the program, I think, has has been really good. I know uh, I've seen things online where there's mixed reviews about going into programs like this, which, uh, for anybody who didn't listen to the original episode... It's the UCLA Extension Film Scoring Program. But, you know, if you didn't take a program like this, it would take you probably several years of, you know, having to get work, maybe work as an assistant, before you would get the kinds of experiences that you would get in such a short amount of time. So um, that's my little blurb about about taking the program. And, uh, yeah, since last summer, I've taken – you know, all three, The they've got kind of the main core classes, film scoring one, two, and three. And, you know, I've taken conducting, advanced orchestration, synthestration, which is MIDI one, which is just basically how to get your sample libraries to sound as realistic as possible. Hmm. Um, composing for animation, which was crazy. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to do a tempo map to hit all the little, you know, every little movement, and blink, and you know, piano falling. <laughs> yeah. So that was a great class. It's just been an amazing program. And kind of what I've learned from it is that the people who appear like they're going to make something of themselves, it's the people that pay attention to detail. It's all the little things. You know, there's there's a bunch of people in the program that write good music, but the people who are really knocking it out of the park every time, especially on recordings, are the people that are paying attention to detail, taking the time to proof their parts, taking the time to, you know, figuring out, is this little pattern I wrote for the violins going to actually be playable? And uh, I think above all, what I've picked up from the program is is attention to detail is what really will allow you to excel in this career and really any career. I mean, it was the same in every other job I've ever had. Is it's, it's paying attention to the little things that nobody wants to pay attention to.
0: Yeah. What advice would you have for people who don't necessarily know how to write for orchestral instruments, um, but want to give it a shot? Like, let's say you don't play a certain instrument, but you want to write for it.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, really, since I was a teenager, I've, I've attempted to learn as many instruments as I could. So, you know, I, uh, I, trumpet is my main one. I picked up guitar when I was about 12 years old. My dad was a classical guitarist, so he, he taught me how to play. Um, you know, I got that Alfred book on playing the piano, and my brother played clarinet, so I stole his clarinet, and I've been learning to play that recently. So definitely if you can learn to play it, that's, that's probably the best. But um, if you don't have that option, obviously instruments cost a lot of money. Uh, my recommendation would be one: get a, a good book on orchestration. You know, probably the most common one is the Samuel Adler book. But the thing that I've I've noticed that has allowed me to, um, at least what I think, get good recordings and good performances, uh, usually from the first take in all my recordings, is that I don't try to get too fancy, you know, or too crazy with the techniques I'm writing. Most instruments. Uh, they've got a comfort zone. You know, there's a comfort zone in terms of range. There's a comfort zone in terms of, you know, the kinds of things that you write. If you write quarter notes, obviously, most people are going to have no problem just kind of chugging along on quarter notes. If you're writing these crazy 30-second note arpeggios going up to some weird thing, everybody's going to have problems with that on the first try. So that if there's anything that can be simplified and— rewritten so that it makes more sense for that instrument, then that has always helped me to succeed on all of my recordings. And, you know, writing characteristically for the instrument is something that takes experience. So a lot of times you won't get it right the first time through. And in fact, probably the, the thing that made me feel the worst out of all the recording sessions I was um, I had to write for piccolo trumpet. And I'm a trumpet player, so I was like, eh, I got this. And I just wrote terribly for it. I wrote really high in the range. It was difficult. I think I I got in my mind what I would be able to do if I were well-rested, not sight-reading. And, you know, once you listen to it a million times, you're like, oh, he's got to get this. This is going to be perfectly fine. And uh, it just didn't, it didn't go well. The guy got it. And uh, he's a great trumpet player, but I felt bad about it. He felt bad that he didn't give me, you know, an amazing performance. I felt bad that I wrote bad music for him. Um, But sticking to what is simple, you know, what generally works, open up a score. And, um, you know, if there's a texture you're thinking of in your mind, chances are another composer's already done it and it's gone through probably several rewrites and multiple performances to where they can test it out to see if it works. So, you know, you open up Mahler and well, Mahler may not be a good idea because he, he tends to write pretty difficult stuff, but um I mean, geez, open up any film score and you're going to see techniques in there that are playable and um, comfortable for instruments because a lot of times film scores are recorded on really short time schedules on high budgets and they just got to get it done quickly. So there's a lot of benefit to really, you know, writing in that manner. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I've I've been thinking a lot more about keys uh, since I started writing more for live musicians. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because, in general, it seems like with pretty much all instruments, you want to stick around C, the key of C, um, and go out from there, either adding sharps or flats, and yeah. just just because I think every instrument is pretty much set up to play in C, unless it
1: well, unless it's a yeah,
0: transposed instrument.
1: But in that case, I mean, s- some some kind of lend themselves more to others. Like when I think of guitar, I think of E major as a relatively easy key. That's true. Um, generally, like if it's a string instrument, I think of the lowest note and that's probably going to be the easiest key for them. So on violin, G is always a good key. Mm-hmm. Um, I think generally strings favor sharp keys. You know, nobody favors like C sharp or, you know, yeah. <laughs> any a- After like five sharps or, you know, five flats, nobody favors any of those. Yeah. Maybe except for piano, I guess, you know, D flat and G flat because you just kind of stay on the black keys and don't worry about anything else. But um, yeah, I think, well, as a violinist, yeah, I would agree with you on
0: G, key of G and D are nice for your mm-hmm. finger shapes, but there's some instances where like I'd rather play B flat than A sharp.
1: I would say in mm-hmm. most cases, actually, uh, is that just a mental a mental thing? Like um, that's B flat mentally is easier than an B. A sharp.
0: Yeah, I think, in finger-wise, I'm more used to lining up my fingers with the, um, I think it has to do with how there's lines and spaces on the staff. I'm Mm -hmm. used to having my first and third finger, like, let's say I'm playing on the A string. I'm used to having my first finger on the line of B, and third finger on the line of of D uh, on the treble clef, Okay, if that makes sense.
1: So that's just kind of where you rest.
0: Yeah, so like I'm used to, when I'm reading music, it's a little easier to read B-flat because it's on the same. I I associate those first and third fingers with the line on the staff versus the space, which would be... my second figure yeah um yeah anyways that's
1: what well, no no hard. that's interesting it's it's kind of like what are the weird little quirks that that every instrument has you know yeah like uh when i'm playing piano you know your my hands fall naturally to some shapes and you know they're obviously triads and stuff um it's got a name actually it's called the tyranny of the fingers that uh, composers <laughs> have huh. have labeled it as if you're if you play an instrument a certain way and you try to compose using that instrument you're going to sound like those things that your hands naturally fall into and um it's one of the reasons why sometimes I like to compose without an instrument just you know grab a piece of paper and try to write from purely my brain and trying to think of what an interval will sound like or you know a certain line would sound like Because I know that if I sit down at the piano, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start playing the same dotted eight 16th note rhythms, you know, doing C major triads. It's like, okay, let's, let's just throw that away immediately and move Mm -hmm. on to something new. So,
0: yeah. At, At the same time, it's like you do need the feedback from hearing instruments too, to in some ways. Well,
1: you know, it, it, it's it's one of those things that it's I don't know how much you've tried to compose without without any feedback.
0: I guess I have tried that a few times and it's usually I think of a really cheesy melody and <laughs> or a goofy song yeah. um in my head. But I I don't know if I've tried anything serious that way.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those things that it's not going to hurt to practice because really when you get down to it as a composer you're trying to get what's in your head out of your head and onto paper and anything in between will have an effect on that good or bad. So, you know, you look at the the state of film music right now. Um for better or worse is a lot of ostinato, you know, a lot of drums, a lot of long melodies, you know, played by eight horns. And it's not that it's inherently bad that that is what most scores are sounding like right now, at least most of the studio big budget movies. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of indie films coming out that have pretty unique, cool kind of stuff but if you pick your average, you know, summer blockbuster, you're going to hear da 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 you know, kind of stuff and then the horn melody comes in that lasts for four bars. And uh I think a lot of it is because it's easy to get feedback on that. You know, it's easy to sit down and turn on, you know, I don't know, sonokinetic 2D or whatever, in this library that'll play cool chord patterns, and it sounds really great. I mean, it sounds amazing, amazing libraries. And it's easy to throw on a horn patch that's six horns playing long legato lines. But because that feedback sounds so good, that's what you end up going with. But there's lots of other techniques that, you know, if you do, if you try to write uh, with samples, fingered tremolos on strings, it's going to sound really weird. Now, unless you had a patch that you know has all the different fingered tremolos pre-recorded. But if you wrote that by hand, you know, uh, say an E to G fingered tremolo, and you get real violins to play it, it sounds really cool. It's this kind of cool, wispy, trill-like sound. But a lot of people will just never do that nowadays because it doesn't sound good with samples. The feedback that they're getting is not really accurate when it comes down to real people playing. Um, and it, a lot of it happens, too, for solo lines. You know, if you, you can play a long, sweeping melody with sample, you know, trumpet playing A to C to D above the staff and it uh, sounds, you know, beautiful, it's all pianistic. You try to get a real trumpet player to play that, and it's probably going to sound choked and tight, and it's not going to sound characteristic. So, you yeah. know, if you, if you know that you're going to be writing a melody for trumpet and you want it to sound realistic, it it may help you to just say, okay, this is the range. That's kind of the uh, the best range to write for trumpet, maybe from low C up to G above the staff. And to just say, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna write something purely from my mind and try to put it down on paper. And once I get 16 bars down or something, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to the piano and I'm gonna see what I think that'll sound like. And then you make. Corrections from there. I mean, it maybe it's this cheesy thing that you've written. And you're like, "That's terrible." Now I know what I don't want to do. But maybe it's something that surprises you. You know, when you're looking, when you're looking at a page and you know the rhythm that you've used three times already, you're going to see that. That's the feedback you get. It's like, "Hey, visually, I've done this three times. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to pick a new kind of rhythm, or I'm going to pick a new shape, or I've gone up." three times so now I'm going to go down it's a different kind of feedback yeah that's a good point
0: going back to the quirks of instruments what would you say are some trumpet quirks or would you have tips on writing for trumpet
1: I guess uh, writing for trumpet is it's a great instrument it's not used enough in film scores nowadays everybody loves the low brass so let's, uh, let's really get this out there But um, you got to remember that, obviously, it's a wind instrument, so they're breathing, but your lips will get really tired really quickly if you have to play a line that's constant and long. So, you know, it may be that G above the staff is no problem for the majority of players. I mean, high school players have absolutely no problem playing that G. But if you hold that G for 16 beats and then they take a breath and they've got to hold it for another 16 beats. They're going to have problems giving that a good tone and it's because the blood has to really it gets pushed out of the lips when you're, you know, when you've got constant pressure. So you got to let it flow back in and, and give them a second to recuperate. It's like lifting weights, you know. If you if you're doing or, you know, doing push-ups till burnout whereas if you, you know, do 15 and then you take a break, And you do another 15, you can can do push-ups for hours and and be fine. So I would say think about how you're giving that player a break. Um, As far as actual, like, you know, the notes on the page, there's techniques that aren't used enough. I think, um, you know, double and triple tongue always sounds really cool, and it's not just for... The you know the short run-ups to a big hit you know um, it can actually be used melodically um, it can be used in short stints uh, if you're writing something for a trumpet you want to write simple you want to write clear but if there's a characteristic thing that sounds really good on their instrument throw it in there because that's what makes your writing sound realistic so things like slurs on chord tones, sound really good. You know, you can you can really kind of pull a lot of emotion out of that, and you get that kind of taps, military sound. You know, obviously a lot of jazz type of techniques, things like shakes, things like uh, doits I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but it's the, you know, when you kind of pinch off the end of the note while you're slurring it up what are shakes shakes is basically where you hear it a lot in big band writing where if you're kind of higher up in the range it's kind of like a a trill that is bigger than a second so a lot of times it'll be like a minor third or a major third and then a lot of times you'll end that up with the, the doy so Some of these techniques, like the, the shakes, probably you may have a little trouble if it's like a high school band or something. It can be a little bit more technical. Sure. But if you're writing for pros, then yeah, go for it. How would you notate that? Normally, I would just write shake above it and then put a little squiggle line. Um, things like a, a a doit, you know, it's just a little curved line going up. I'll have to double check that in my <laughs> my orchestration manual. Sure. But... Uh, But I'm sure if you Google it, there's a million people telling you how to do it online. And you know what? That actually brings up a good point. A lot of times, if you don't know how to write something, you can usually just describe it very short and to the point, and the players will figure it out. Like a technique that is common in cartoon music is the gobble, and it's for trombone, and you just write gobble. And the players, at least, you know, if they're playing for studios and stuff, they know what to do. They're like, blah, 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 on, on the trombone. And it's a very funny, kind of cool sound. But literally, you just write gobble above the note and they know exactly <laughs> what to do. Um, or like wahs and wops. You know, you hear that a lot in Cardinal wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and you yeah. just, you literally write W A, W A, W A. But if you take a second to, to talk to the player and be like, hey, I, I wrote this. Does that make sense? A lot of times they'll tell you that's perfectly fine. They know what you're talking about. Maybe you want to write it like this in the future. Sure. So the animation class you took, I just
0: looked up your professor, Charles Fernandez, and yeah, I, I saw he do, did like Little Mermaid and Aladdin and
1: yeah, know, so a uh,
0: ton of Disney scores.
1: I'm not sure in, in terms of the feature films, he may have been an orchestrator or a ranger on some of those, you know, a lot of the guys that are in this program are not the, um, a listers, so to speak. Obviously those guys are super busy, but there are a lot of the behind the scenes guys. So you get a lot of, you know, top orchestrators. Um, I think the guy right now teaching the, uh, intro to orchestration class is, um, Michael G Aquino's orchestrator. Cool. You know, I'll, you name it and these guys are probably part of the 90s cartoon that you loved. And uh what's good about that is that back then there was still a lot of live music going on. A, lo- a lot of the music has gone just purely sample library based now just cuz the budgets have have gone down. Um but they've got a ton of experience and you know all these guys they've got cool techniques to teach and do you have any golden nuggets of info that these teachers taught you? You know what? I can't remember who told me this quote, which teacher it was, but uh, I can remember who it came from. It was Basil Polidorus, and um, it was, you have to break into the business of tomorrow, which I thought was, that was a really good insight that a lot of people, you know, if you go on any composition Facebook group, you'll see probably 15 guys that are posting hey here's my epic orchestra track please like it you know and that is it's the business of today and yeah it's it's good to be able to do that but really you got to think when would be my time um it's not going to be right now you know there's there's a set of a-listers and sadly I, i'm i'm not sure if you've heard the news but um james horner Died yesterday in a plane crash, which um, yeah. a lot of people are really, really upset over, and it's a really sad thing. Yeah, because he's still young, still had a lot of great music in him. But, um, but yeah, you have to think about when is going to be if there's going to be my time. When would that time be? Um, it's not going to be right now. It's not going to be this year. It's probably going to be at, you know, in a minimum five to ten years from now that you could really start to to make a dent. And that's what you got to be thinking. You know, you look at a a guy like John Williams. You know, I think he did something like 40 movies before he did Jaws. And Hmm. he was writing a lot of those movies in what's called the modern style. I don't know if you're familiar with film scoring theory at all. But there's basically, there was this modern style that started to pop up. And it's, you know, jazz scores in the 50s and it's scores like Ennio Morricone and other ones that aren't your traditional big film score sound and he was really one of the main ones to say I I think that the movies that are coming out need to to get back to that more traditional sound I mean obviously he got paired up with the right movies Jaws and Star Wars and Indiana Jones But he wrote in the style that he felt was going to really work, not necessarily right now with audiences, but what was really working for the movie, and and it paid off. He's had an amazing career. So what's popular right now may not necessarily be popular 10 years from now, and you really got to work on what's your unique voice. Yeah. I don't
0: know if you've seen these videos, but like Star Wars without the music... Or, oh, yeah. Yeah, any of his films without the music are just, like, awkward. <laughs> not, <laughs> yeah. not energetic. Or, like, no. E.T., the kids biking around. I think people use that as an example a lot. But yeah, it would just be kids biking around. You, there'd be no, no drama. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, and, you know, obviously, not to say that George Lucas can't make a good film, you know, or Spielberg can't make a good film. Right. I would say music has to be looked at as an equal part of the drama um, of the story. For instance, that bike scene at the end of E.T., that was cut to the music. That you know, they tried several times to get a recording that worked and, and you know the orchestra maybe got off a little bit. And Spielberg said, just conduct it the way you hear it, and then I'll recut the scene to your music. And I'm sure that's every composer's dream for the director to say, you know, you've got the reins on this one. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a little bit unfair for us to say, oh, that scene doesn't work without the music. Obviously it doesn't because it was cut to the music. But music really sets the pace. It sets the undercurrent of how fast or how slow the scene is going. I mean, if you've got one long held note, you can make a fast scene feel really slow. But if you've got uh, a constant you know, eighth or sixteenth note pulse underneath, you can make a slow scene feel really fast. And um, yeah, that throne room scene at the end of Star Wars, it does, it drags on without the music, but really the focus, there's no dialogue. You know, there's uh, maybe a couple of sound effects here and there, you know, some smiles. And I love the replaced Chewbacca scream. I, don't know, I think it made that <laughs> that whole video.
0: Yeah. For people who haven't watch that it's it's pretty great they replaced all the sound effects well there probably weren't many sound effects in it but they replaced them all with like awkward coughs from the audience and (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. well i I was listening to your recent podcast episode on orchestration and i i thought it was cool when you're talking about your five staff orchestration method of uh-huh. thinking about uh, one staff as the melody line one staff as the counter melody one as the pad Yeah. and what were the other
1: ones you had um, so you've got uh, melody, you've got counter melody you've got melodic fills you've got pad and then you've got percussion and you know a lot of the stuff that I'm trying to improve on is stuff that's really geared towards composing quickly, getting your ideas down quickly and efficiently, collaborating possibly with other orchestrators or with other composers. And for a composer, you know, you don't organize in your mind the piccolo and the flute and the clarinet necessarily always working together or the oboe, you know, but they're really close together on the score. So if you look at how the score actually, you know, kind of the the bones, the skeleton of the score, a lot of times you've got the primary element, which is normally the melody. I mean, technically you could have anything as a primary element, it could be a, a big drum hit or something. But you've got your primary element, you've got your secondary element, which could be a counterline to it. You've got the pad, which is basically your chords. They could be a simple sustained pad, or it could be a rhythmic pad it could be an arpeggio that's going back and forth but whatever it is it kind of gives you that glue uh, harmonically that that holds things together then a lot of times you've got little melodic fills that don't quite fit into the the realm of a counterline you know it it's the little whatever that just kind of sits there or maybe it's the the big woodwind run that leads up to the end of the chord and then you've got your percussion which or a lot of times they match the rhythms, but they're kind of a separate element. You kind of think of those differently. So um, I, I didn't come up with this. This is what I got from my advanced orchestration class um, from Tom Sharp. And and he got it from his teachers a long time ago. And it's just, it's just mm. a great way to sit and try to arrange something quickly.
0: That's funny because uh, those five things line up almost exactly with a music mixing book that I was reading that was talking about the five layers of a pop song mm-hmm. and it's the same you know melody a counter melody fills like a guitar fill or whatever pad mm-hmm. and percussion and I was talking about thinking about which instrument is doing what thing and they can kind of switch off uh, yeah. doing them but
1: yeah no and in- you know, it like uh, modern pop, I mean, it's got its roots back to the 30s and 40s with big band stuff, and those concepts then have leaked through to the rangers of today, you know, and everybody's using different instruments, but the concepts and the, the mindset are still the same. And the benefit of this is if you try to get into the details from the beginning, a lot of times what you're set with at the beginning, you end up just using throughout and your piece doesn't have much shape to it. It doesn't have, you know, dynamic contrast. So if you can step away from those details and just look at the big picture, then you can, you can really get outside the box. So kind of the first step is, you know, just write something simple, a simple melody and chords. You don't have to try to write out a, a cool voicing for it or you don't have to write a cool pattern for it. You just have to have an idea of what it's about the next step after you do that is to arrange it mentally using words. You don't have to know what the violins are playing right now. You just have to write, "Mm, I want the violins to do something like this. Or maybe you don't have to get that detailed. It's like, I want this to be earth shattering, right? That's going to mean something. You don't know quite what that means yet. But if you write the first eight bars are earth shattering, that's like, What does that mean? You know, it gives you a lot of mental freedom to start experimenting. And then maybe the next eight bars are flying. (laughs) Maybe you don't know what flying is. Maybe you don't know what earth shattering is. Maybe you get an idea what flying is first and you write that. Now you've got somewhere to go and you can work backwards. You can figure out, okay, I need to transition to this. So maybe earth shattering for the first two bars and then, you know, maybe just house shattering after that. Maybe just cup shattering. I don't know. <laughs> you know, Like you can get almost stupid about it, but it, it frees you from, you know, what, what don't you know about composing? What, I don't know every cool way to write a string pad, but I know some cool words that I can throw in there, you know? So then the next step is to flesh out that word arrangement into this short score, this five line sketch that you've got. You know, you don't have to flesh out the voicings yet either. You could just still write the C chord, and then you could write, you know, whatever the rhythm is underneath that. And you can say, I just want this pad, and I just want the melody. I don't want anything else. Or maybe underneath, you've got, you know, the percussion going. You write out what rhythm the percussion has. You don't have to say any specific instruments at this point. It's the sketch. And then from there, you start to develop it into a bigger score to where... You can divvy it up, and maybe you add elements, and and obviously you go back and forth. It's not it's not a perfect, you know, five steps, and you're done. You kind of bounce back and forth till you get your final product, what you like. Yeah. That word method that you're talking about,
0: writing down earth shattering or something, mm-hmm. that seems like good training as a film composer because I'm sure you'll get a lot of briefs from directors that say oh this needs to be earth-shattering here or words that you would have no idea what the music would sound like necessarily yeah uh,
1: yeah it's true and and um you know the the directors that I've worked with now I try to tell them at the beginning you don't need to tell me musical terms because that's that's my job just like you know I don't need to tell him what lens to use for some shot or how the lighting needs to be. It's like, I don't know. You know, I, I just know I, I, I want to know the emotions that you want to portray in this scene. And a lot of times temp tracks help, um, you know, as much as we limit temp tracks, which are basically the music they throw on there that they think kind of works. A lot of times they don't even know how to describe that. And just giving us the emotion that they want to portray a lot of times will work better than trying to say, oh, I think you should use minor chords here. Or I think the melody should be in um, quarter notes. It's like maybe they played an instrument growing up or maybe they're composers themselves, but that's why they're bringing us on is that they want us to have our fingerprint on the film as well. So if you practice, you know, trying to come up with emotions or words in your own arranging, now it gives you ammunition, when you're talking to a director, say, oh, this could be earth-shattering right here. And at least you've got a concept of what that means in your mind, and you would be able to potentially play that for them. It's like, oh, hey, this is kind of what I picture as earth-shattering. Does this meet your intent? And they may actually say, no, earth-shattering means a piccolo. You know, And they may have a totally different concept of what earth-shattering is. Hmm. But, uh, but at least it gives you a starting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think many directors would think a piccolo is earth-shattering, maybe ear-shattering. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever <laughs> yeah. sat in front of a piccolo, but I don't know if it would shatter the earth. <laughs> yeah. Time to break in with a little promo
0: for lynda.com. Since we're talking about film scoring, I thought I'd share a clip from a great Linda interview with Richard Gibbs, who's composed for over 60 films and TV shows like The Simpsons and Battlestar Galactica. Here he talks about the benefits of conducting his own orchestral film scores.
2: I can work very quickly that way. If I'm right there in the room, I know what changes I want to make and I'm musically literate enough to call it out and say, you know, stop um, the bassoon. uh, Your parts in the wrong octave. I wrote it wrong or something. Let's fix that right now. bars 37 to 41, change that. Uh, Trumpets, uh, you know, half of you, can you guys go into mutes? You know, that, that kind of thing. You just call out quickly while I'm standing in the center of the orchestra. That's the beauty of conducting. The other reason to conduct for me is that if I don't conduct, that means I'm in the booth, in the control room. Who else is in the control room? The producers and the director. Yeah, yeah. There's a different mindset going on there. right? They're looking at the film and thinking about how, how is this helping the film? Is this hurting me? What's going on? It changes what I, how I might do things.
0: If you're interested in more courses and videos like this one, you can try Lynda free for 10 days by visiting lynda.com quest. I also just want to say a special thanks to Julie Haynes at lynda.com for being so helpful in arranging this sponsorship this season. I definitely didn't expect to have a commercial sponsor on the podcast, but I think it was a nice having a sponsor that aligned so well with the mission of my show. If nothing else, I hope you gained a little knowledge from these snippets of Lynda courses. Now let's get back to my talk with John Brantingham. I was reading your blog post about Gustav Mahler, and that was kind of interesting because I had just actually seen the Minnesota Orchestra play his Symphony Number no. 1. Oh, yeah, one of my favorites. Yeah, and uh, it was a really interesting experience hearing that because it's, so huge and spans styles, and it seems like it's kind of all over the place, unlike, I guess, what I thought his music was like. Um, I don't
1: know. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's um, he has probably been my favorite composer since I was maybe about twelve, eleven, twelve 11, 12 years old. It was the second CD I ever bought. Uh, first one was Chopin's Nocturnes, but the second one was Symphony Number 1. And I've probably listened to that symphony more than anything else out there. And um Mahler's a, a very interesting guy. You know, he had a tragic life. He lost six or seven siblings when he was a kid. They you know either died in childbirth or through accidents. And this really had a huge effect on his music. There's this one famous story where he was a child and his parents were having a a horrible fight. His dad, I think, was an alcoholic. It was just this terrible thing. So he runs outside and he sees a guy playing a little grinder organ thing with a monkey dancing on a leash. And it kind of cemented in his mind this juxtaposition of the tragic and the humorous and these kind of weird dualities of the way the world works. You know, he's losing all these siblings, and yet he's got these funny things on the street, and he's enjoying little bits of life. So you can really hear that in his music. It'll go from this amazing, fast tempo, fun thing, all of a sudden down to a funeral march. Uh, You know, he's got Frère Jacques as the third movement in that symphony played in minor by a solo bass. It's just a strange thing, and it actually had a poor reception the first time he played it. Um, and he's he's famous for saying, my time will come, you know, and it really only came after he died, long after he died, uh, kind of starting, I think, mm. in the 50s and 60s. He started to become a lot more popular. And now he's really having his heyday. I mean, he's getting performed a lot. I just went to a performance of Symphony Number no. 6 with the L.A. Phil, you know, just amazing music, amazing orchestrator. The guy, The guy was... Uh, the head of the Vienna Opera. He had to leave, actually, because he was a Jew and ended up coming to New York and um, I think it led the New York Philharmonic. I'm not quite there yet in the biography. This is just based off of other things that I've read. But, uh, you know, he had access to scores back then that most people didn't get access to because he had to perform them. So he was performing... You know, Wagner, he was performing Mozart. He was performing all the great composers of the day and before and was known for being kind of a tyrant, you know, holding people for hours and hours during rehearsals. And normally the orchestra would hate him. (laughs) But what it meant is that he really understood balance. He understood textures and sounds in ways that a lot of people didn't. So if you get into his scores, one, you'll notice how complicated they are, how many directions he gives. But two, you'll just notice where... He's got the most interesting textures, or he's not afraid to have a, you know, 110-piece orchestra and only use the bassoon and the oboe alone for eight bars. And, you know, whereas most most of us would say, if I've got a hundred-piece orchestra, I'm going to use a hundred pieces all the time. Mm -hmm. And he just didn't think like that because he's like, I've got a hundred-piece orchestra all the time, so I'm just going to write what I want to (laughs) write.
0: Yeah. That's a struggle for me too, kind of, because if I'm writing an orchestra piece, I want everyone to be playing something cool, yeah, all the time. But maybe, maybe it should be a little bit more like give people a cool part, and then they're willing to sit for a few measures and not play anything, or yeah. <laughs> just, no,
1: definitely, it's it's a. Uh... It's a thing that you feel guilty giving somebody a boring part. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I try not to do this, uh, but sometimes the uh, it just happens. I'll say, "I'm so sorry, your part sucks." You know? <laughs> I'm sorry you're playing quarter notes for forty eight bars. But if it's what the music needs, it's what the music needs. You know, you look at timpani parts for the great <laughs> the great symphonies of the world, and it's like a hundred bars of rest, and then. Da-da-da. But at that moment, it's the most important thing is that timpani roll, you know, into a big hit. And, you know, players know what they're getting into. If you're a trumpet player, your chances are you're not going to play the Andante movement, you know, of a romantic symphony, because it's probably all going to be the strings or maybe a little bit of woodwinds in there. So just write write the music that you feel needs to be there. And then once you've written the music, grab your eraser and erase everything that you feel doesn't need to be there. Because a lot of times we overwrite, you know, we're scared. Um, I think I, I mentioned this in the last podcast uh, about the uh, my teacher saying doubling is for cowards. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 this need that we have to fill up the page. You know, if you've got an entire orchestra staff paper and you've got one thing playing, you're like, that can't be right. But if it's a really about that one line and it, it's what the music calls for, don't be afraid to just write a solo for oboe or a solo for tuba. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't try to give somebody a cool part. I mean, a lot of times something can be written so that it's both musically doing what you need and it's actually kind of fun to play. Yeah. Well, talking about that,
0: having instruments play solo parts I, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast in the past but that dynamic shift from like a full spectrum of instruments down to one
1: is what gives people chills I think yeah and it's, it's one of the reasons why that sketching method works well it's because you know if you're looking at a full score a lot of times it can be hard to take in exactly what's happening But if you're looking at a single line, or let's say you're looking at the five-line sketch, you can very clearly see when you've taken out something, or you can very easily see when things are very rhythmic, and then they drop to sustain notes with a single melody. Um, So it's that kind of big picture looking at your music that that really helps out.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, would you want to talk a little bit about your updated Art of Composing Academy and explain yeah. what what you've been doing with that?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, I released the original Academy back in, in October, and uh, originally it was, you had to pay, you get the course for life, but it was a much higher price. Now I've, you know, I've basically said, you know, I think I'll probably get more people into this if I offer at a lower price at a monthly payment, and then you just basically get access to all the courses I'm going to be putting out. And uh, my big effort recently is putting out a course on sonata form. So I think in the last podcast, we talked about the sonata form book I put out a few years ago, and I've always wanted to expand on that because, you know, learning form is a great way to learn how music interacts with time. That to me has always been the most interesting thing. How is it that a certain kind of writing feels like a beginning and how a certain kind of writing feels like a middle and an end. Yeah. So I've been really trying to take the time to dissect it and figure out what techniques are important for a composer to know to be able to control those aspects of time. And uh, probably the most interesting one that I've come across is loosening techniques. So in classical form, you've got what are called tight knit themes and these tight knit themes are what you think of when you think of a theme it's the you know it's the eight bar theme it's the antecedent consequent the stuff that is you know memorable and hummable but how do you do all the rest around it and sometimes it's easy to say you know this is what an exposition is but it's a, a lot harder to say how do you do that So the loosening techniques are are basically eight techniques and they cover, you know, how to make it longer, how to make it shorter, how to make it feel awkward, how to make it feel like you're getting your point across quickly, or, you know, how to make it feel like you didn't get your point across, musically speaking. Um, And they're extension, uh, expansion, compression, interpolation, fusion, asymmetrical grouping, functional redundancy, and functional deficiency. And uh, those all probably sound a little Mm. bit strange to people. So um, if we've got the time, I I can probably expand on them a little bit. Uh, Sure, yeah. Um, Okay, so taking an eight-bar theme, a basic idea may be da 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 Well, extension, uh, which is the first loosening technique, is where you may extend that basic idea by adding another repetition. Da 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 da. Now if you compare that against another loosening technique which is expansion, what you're doing is you're expanding that basic idea from the inside. So now you're not taking that basic idea chunk and adding it at the end, another chunk. What you're doing is you're taking that chunk and you're making it a slightly bigger chunk. So if we go back to our idea here from Mozart. Da da da, da 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 If you were to expand it, you may do bump, ba bum ba bum ba, ba 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 ba. So you're actually lengthening the idea itself. Now compare that with the next technique, which is compression. It's kind of the opposite of expansion. So you may have the values of the notes, but you may just remove some notes, or you may remove a harmony or something. Da 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 da. da, da. Interpolation is kind of a different thing. So, you can interpolate new material between two formal functions. And the idea is that this material is unrelated. So, you know, if you've got this idea, most people now are expecting, right? If you're going to interpolate new material between them, you may do. Da, 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 and then you continue on so it's a way of thinking about how do I add some new material that maybe changes the idea or changes the pacing, but it doesn't internally change the elements that i'm I'm using it's a completely new idea um, the next one fusion fusion is basically just fusing two formal functions together um, the last three uh, asymmetrical grouping redundancy and deficiency, they're more byproducts of the first five techniques, but they're ways of thinking about how you're controlling your music. So asymmetrical grouping is is one of those things where you may have a three-bar idea because you've expanded it, followed by a two-bar idea that was not expanded. It can make your your music feel really off-kilter. And it's a cool technique to use if you've got to make something feel strange. You know, you want to maybe have a quirky bassoon line and and it's for like a weird hobbit character or something. If the first idea is three bars and the second idea is two bars, that's going to make it feel a lot more awkward than if everything is nice and even and two bars as you go along. Um, And then functional redundancy is really, you know, if you're extending something or expanding something, you've got more material there than is necessary to really state what the theme is about. Now, redundant doesn't mean bad. Redundant can be very good. It can, it can expand your themes. It can make it seem much more epic. It's a way for you to understand what you're doing, as opposed to just, you know, walking around blindly. And then deficiency is the same thing. It's just you're you're missing a formal function. So th- that's the concept of of loosening techniques. And and to me, it gives you something to actually practice, as opposed to just blindly writing in the dark. Um, which I think a lot of composers, they don't approach the act of composition as I'm practicing something. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get better with specific skills. If you can't name those skills, how can you get better at them? So that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, well, what skill will allow me to write a piece that's five minutes long? I can repeat the same four bar chord progression for five minutes. That works sometimes. But a lot of times it doesn't work. A lot of times it'll just get boring and you've got to have some tricks up your sleeve in order to keep people interested. So yeah, practicing these kind of techniques will really allow you to do it. Yeah.
0: What do you think has been the most helpful for people who are taking your
1: courses? Some of the more simple things I get a lot of feedback on. So it's just the concepts that music can actually be split up into smaller chunks that are usable. You know, people I've gotten emails from PhDs saying that they didn't quite understand form until they read an article on my blog. And it's it's telling people that there are simple straightforward ideas and techniques that will allow you to compose like the guys that you love to listen to. If you look at a Beethoven theme it's pretty straightforward you know if you look at the way Chopin writes it's actually relatively straightforward now there's a lot of skill there's a lot of nuance there's a lot of technique built up over time but the core of it is really simple so you know teaching people that you can just start with half notes and chord tones as a melody and then connect them and that's groundbreaking for some people it's like oh I don't actually have to come up with you know Da, 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 da. You know, you don't have to come up with that at first. You can just say, you know what, I've got an idea for a chord progression. let start with that and just write half notes on the chord tones of those chords and then figure out how you're going to connect them. Um, a lot of times you'll come up with a better melody that way because now your melody is grounded in a solid chord progression. It's grounded in the harmony underneath. You know, most melodies even if people write them without a chord progression in mind, they follow standard chord progressions. It's the stuff that you've heard growing up your entire life, um, and it's kind of deep inside you. And this way you're actually thinking about it. Yeah. That's a good point about writing a chord progression
0: first versus the melody first. I hadn't really thought about that, because, yeah, like you say, you're you're guaranteed to have... Um, more interesting background from the start, I think.
1: Yeah, there's a a way of teaching composition that comes from Italy, and it's called partimenti. And it's basically these patterns that composers would learn. And they're patterns that have a lot of flexibility in them. So one of the, the most famous ones is called the Romanesca. And Everybody's heard the Romanesca because it's canon in D. Um, you know, the thing that's played at every wedding and every um, Hugh Grant movie, you know. <laughs> and it's just this chord progression, and it's an outline of where the melody needs to go. And uh, there's a guy, Robert, I think it's Ger- Gerdingen. He shows you examples of what the composers had to do as students using these partimenti. And you can see how flexible they are. And that's why that chord progression has been used in everything since Canon and D. I mean, everybody's used it. You know, most movies have it somewhere. And uh, most songs from, you know, Basket Case by Green Day to... I can't remember. There's a guy who does that, you know, I Hate Canon and D on on YouTube. Everybody needs to watch it. Because that progression comes from that time. It was a part of Menti that every composer in Italy had to learn. Uh, and a lot of composers around the world. I mean, Bach learned the Italian style. He's got those Italian keyboard sonatas where he's showing how he knew this stuff. That's, you know, he learned it. Haydn uh, has quotes of him saying he really learned to compose when he had an Italian teacher who taught him these things. So, so yeah, starting with a chord progression, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And, uh, I mean, most pop, most jazz, people just take somebody else's chord progression and write their own thing on top of it. And, yeah, there's there's no shame in, in going to a piece that you like and figuring out, okay, what, what is happening harmonically here and swiping it and doing your own thing on top of it. I mean, there's that's how we learn. We learn through assimilating what composers have done in the past, and then through that we can come up with our own stuff. Yeah. What does the future hold
0: for you now that you're— almost done with your film scoring program
1: well yeah well my my goal is over the next year to really just work on my site uh, i've got a, a whole string of courses that i want to put out uh, really the the progression that i see which i i think will be interesting for a lot of people is i want to take people through composing an entire piano sonata and then from there, composing a string quartet, a Winwood quintet, a brass quintet, basically teach them orchestration through the process of these very clear-cut ways of writing classical music. And then kind of the far off, distant project is I want to take people through writing a symphony. You know, now it's not going to be Mahler's symphony number no. one or symphony number no. five. It's not going to be a an hour and a half long thing. It's going to be a traditional short you know, late classical, early romantic type symphony. Um, But it gives people, uh, you know, a goal, and it gives me a goal over the next year to two years. But beyond that, this winter, I'm going to be applying. um, My first choice would be the USC Masters in Composition program, Uh, but I'll probably apply to several other schools, UCLA and Northridge, just in this area, because I, I would like to one, get more recording experience, more player experience. It's it's hard to come by players to play your music a lot. And being in a school gives you that opportunity. Um, but two, just, just to get some different influences, get some new teachers, you know, work on my style of composition. Um, after being in a film scoring program for a year, it would be kind of nice to just write some music and not worry about hitting, you know, hit points on a on a reel or mm-hmm. you know matching the mood of a scene just write what i want to write for a while and kind of start to build up what is my sound what what makes me me with my music yeah that that topic
0: is always kind of interesting like figuring out what your composer voice is so it's kind of an ambiguous thing i think yeah <laughs> i
1: wish i had the answer uh, unfortunately i think that The only answer that I've got is it takes time and effort. You know, you'll eventually, if you write enough stuff, you'll start to sound like you. I think most people don't reach that point, though. You know, most people think that they're writing something unique. And in reality, they're just writing something that sounds like something they heard, you know, as a kid. And uh, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of knowledge to get past that point. At least this is what I think and that's i'm going to be striving in the next you know my 10 year plan i want to i want to get past that point 10 years from now yeah uh, my 20 year plan is to write a masterpiece 20 years from now <laughs> my 10 year plan is to just just get that you know get past that point to where it's like i'm not having to think about these basic things in composition i can i can just know that they're there i know how to write a piano sonata because i've done it you know i know how to I know how to orchestrate a cue for a film score because I've done it now. Now now the hard stuff really happens. Like, how do I internalize that completely so that I don't ever have to think about it again? It just happens. Because uh, once you can do that, you kind of free up that mental space to experiment. It's, that's where you start to get the idea. It's like, you know, jump out of the shower. I've got it. I need to piccolo and tuba play the melody together, you know?
0: <laughs> yep. I'm sure that's your usual revelation. Right? <laughs> that's
1: it. Every time, I, <laughs> I really need to write that, that double concerto for piccolo and Duba. <laughs> It'll be earth-shattering. It will be, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, it will be earth-shattering. And ear-shattering together. And Those ear-shattering are, at maybe the it same to, time. It may, instead, of, instead of tuba, it needs to be chimbasso. Oh, what, what is that? The chimbasso, as uh, one of my teachers said, is... A cross between a tuba and a chainsaw, and it 's used in Hollywood for making farting noises on trailers so, a, <laughs> so those things that are called brams you 've probably heard them probably most people remember them from the inception trailer it 's that oh,
3: thing that happens yeah.
1: about every four seconds yep and uh, that's a that 's called a bram, and uh, the main instrument that does those is the chimbaso and it's it 's basically like a really super bass trombone thing. I think it's valved, actually. So it's like a super bass trumpet. But it's, it's real directional, really uh, piercing, very earth-shattering, especially when you mix it with tuba. Huh. Cool.
0: Well, I have a question for you from our previous guests because we started a question chain here on the podcast. So my last guest, Siama Matazungiri, asked how do you know when your composition is finished
1: um well basically when i have to send in my parts to get it recorded that night has been the (laughs) most recent answer it's like it's done i don't care if it's done it's done um there are there's obviously no like measuring stick to say, this is done. You know, I can, I can be safe in saying that this is complete. And there's all sorts of composers from the past that would rewrite their stuff over and over again. Uh, To get back to Mahler, when he premiered his, I think it was his sixth symphony, he was waiting to hear back from uh, Strauss, Richard Strauss, they would write letters back and forth. And Strauss popped his head in and said it was over orchestrated. And Mahler, broke down to weeping, and then reorchestrated. So he already had the premiere of his symphony and then would reorchestrate it. And he, you know, his, the premiere of his first symphony, he's got this movement called the Blue Mean Movement, and it's this really awesome solo for trumpet. But he took that whole movement out. He premiered a symphony, and then he said, it's just not going to be there. So if guys like that are willing to say, I'm going to still make changes on the back end, then it's easy for us to say there's no definitive point at which your composition is finished. It's more of a gut feeling. It's like, you know what, I feel good about this. Would you would you feel good about handing this to a player? Playability is is really, you know, once you've reached that point, then I think it's safe to say that you're done because there's a lot of benefit in moving on to the next thing. There's stuff that I've written where I don't care that much to hear it anymore. I don't care that much to edit the score anymore. Because I really got what I needed out of it. I, I learned my new technique or I, I answered a, a question in my mind. You know, is this playable on violins? How is this going to work? And maybe maybe that's a great way to do it. Approach a, a piece with a couple questions. And once those questions are answered and your piece is at the, like you've actually reached a point where you can say this is like a ba-ba at the end, then you're done. You've answered your questions. You've reached the end. Make it playable. Bada-bing, bada-boom. You're done. Yeah. Yeah, and back to Mahler again.
0: It was interesting reading in your blog post that he didn't finish a lot of pieces because he either was excited to work on something new or sick of them. Or <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great example. He, um, as a young student composer, he wasn't writing the music that he really wanted to write. And I I think a lot of people will get dismayed at this and feel the same way, that you've got this idea in your head of this is what great music sounds like. And then you actually sit down to write, and it sounds not even close to the music that you imagined. And there's this gap. And if you get to the middle of a piece and you've closed the gap a little bit, but you're bored with the piece— There's nothing wrong with abandoning the piece. Now, it's good to finish things, too, because I think you build up this mental baggage of if you've got a 100 half-a-piano pieces, you're going to feel like, man, I never accomplish anything. So finish some of them, obviously, but don't feel like everything has to be brought to completion if you're bored with it. You know, throw it away, burn it, do whatever. Most (laughs) of the great composers, they trash their early stuff because they know it sucked, you know, yeah, and they don't want people to remember the stuff that sucked; they just want people to remember the stuff that was really good,
0: yeah there's uh a, a friend of mine who has gotten back as many copies of his first c. d as he could and smashed them <laughs> and burned them all. That's funny, which I think I don't know. I think it's okay to have people hear your early stuff too. Just because, I mean, everyone's in progress.
1: Yeah, everybody's in progress. And it, it, it helps new guys to see that old guys sucked at some point. Um, yeah. <laughs> mentally, it's helpful to say, like, hey, this guy didn't pop out of the womb. You know, it, look at Mozart's First Symphony. Uh, not anything bad against Mozart, but it's not very good. 're like, yeah, maybe he was like five or eight, so i 'll give him a break, <laughs> give him a little break, I guess I'll give but, him a little break. yeah, but it 's like Mozart you know this has this aura around him that he came out as a pure genius, but the reality is his dad was considered the greatest music teacher in all of Europe. He basically forced him all day to practice instruments and to learn counterpoint and to learn to compose. And he traveled around the country getting access to the greatest composers of the time. And still, you know, most people don't listen to his early stuff. They listen to his late stuff. They listen to the last couple symphonies. They listen to the last couple operas, you know, the last couple piano sonatas and whatever. That's the stuff that people know. They don't know symphony number one, you know, because it's, a child writing, trying to learn the craft of composition mixed in with a little bit of his father, I think actually making a lot of changes to it. So what we're hearing is probably Hmm. not even what Mozart wrote. It's what he plus his dad wrote. Um, Hmm. So if you go back, maybe that will be uh, inspirational. Some people listen to the terrible early symphonies of Mozart (laughs) and realize that you're not that bad.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So do you have a question for my next guest? I guess, in the next season of the podcast. Oh, that's a big... That's a tall order. It's, it's got to yeah, That's a an entire now, but...
1: break. Hmm. Okay. Um, if you had to come up with an orchestration style that is earth-shattering, <laughs> what would be the main five instruments that you would focus on? Ooh, that's good. We'll see if they
0: come up with the... Uh, <laughs> what was Pic- that thing piccolo called?
1: piccolo and Chimbaso. <laughs>
0: yeah Chim- <laughs> nice well thanks thanks so much john for being on the podcast here again yeah thanks for having me yeah and uh looking forward to more episodes of your podcast
1: yeah so am i uh yeah hopefully i've got some more time I'm not not that many classes coming up here so cool
0: Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with John Brantingham. You can check out his composition courses and podcasts at artofcomposing.com. You can find his own music at johnbrantingham.com, and that's spelled J O N without an H. By the way, John created this great theme for his episode, and we decided his challenge should be to create something earth shattering using piccolo and chimpasso. Thanks for meeting the challenge, John. The question of the week is, what percentage of your composition ideas do you see through to completion? If I were to include all the demos I record and forget about, I'd say I'm probably in the 3-5% to range. Share your answer at forum.composerquest.com. Thanks again to all you loyal listeners, and thanks especially to everyone who's been donating during this season. Two and a half years ago when I started the podcast, I had no idea it would take off and become my part-time job. Like I said, I'm looking forward to starting up Season 5 in October. I think alternating between three months of podcasting and three months of not podcasting will be a good sustainable schedule that'll keep things fresh and prevent burnout on my end. I also think that having more time to do artistic projects in between podcast seasons will be good for my personal composing quest. Then I'll be able to bring new questions and ideas that I'm passionate about to the show. Feel free to get in touch with me in the off-season, charlie at composerquest.com, or follow ComposerQuest on Twitter or Facebook. So not only is this the season finale of ComposerQuest, it's also the final episode of All My Musical Children, our soap opera based on the musical made in game at darwintunes.org. Last week, we mated two musical loops to create this noisy little hooligan. Our little loop has come of age very quickly, and now it's ready to mate with another loop. Let's take a listen to the potential mates out there, starting with this one from Yoda, aka Dan Wheeler. Okay, next loop. Hmm, not much going on there. Let's move on. Wait, something's not right here. Let's see what's next. Hmm, just silence. Well, it turns out after this silent one, the next four loops all sound exactly the same. Clearly something's buggy with the Darwin Tunes game right now. All these loops have usernames that sound like bots, too. Well, the mystery will have to be solved later. Let's choose Dan Wheeler's loop and see what babies come out. Here are the eight musical children that popped out. like Gustav Mahler's unfortunate siblings, seven of them won't make it very far. I had to choose one child to represent the family and throw away the others. So I picked child one. Now since this is our last episode, I thought I'd play all the parent and chosen child loops from our entire seven generation family tree starting with the first round I played. In each subsequent round, the child loop is mated with a new parent loop, and they create a new child. See if you can pick out the musical characteristics that get passed on from generation to generation. Round 1. Parents.
2: Round 2. New parent. Child. Round 3. New parent. Child Round Four New Parent
3: Child
2: Child. Child. Round Five New Parent Child Round Six New Parent Child, Child. Round 7. New Parent. Child.
0: Now for our special guest. I asked the creator of Darwin Tunes, Bob McKellum, to come back on the show and give some final thoughts on the ComposerQuest family tree. Hey Bob.
4: Hi Charlie, how's it going? Good. I hear you've been uh, reading some tunes, with Darwin Tunes.
0: Yes, yeah, That I've been doing it once a week about for seven weeks and keeping track of it on this show, the soap opera called All My Musical Children.
4: Yeah, I heard the first episode, yeah.
0: So, pretty goofy <laughs> but fun thing to do. And um, I thought I'd ask you back on the show to talk just a little bit about, just give us some a little bit of a wrap-up on this project. So, you just heard my whole family tree. Mm-hmm. And I have a question for you off the bat. Do you know which generation used one of your loops as one of the parents?
4: Uh, I think it was... Very the very first generation
0: yeah, uh I think it was actually the second generation, what the parent Ah, okay I was just kind of curious, after playing the game so many times, do you still recognize all the loops you've created yourself?:
4: Yeah, I thought to so recognize something near the beginning. I mean, bits of my tunes don't really belong to me because I I borrowed bits of other people's tunes and then my tunes get evolved or bred into other people's. So ideas flow around between different users.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. It was interesting coming back after like a week of not working on it and there's just such a variety of ideas and sounds. It seems like... There's not necessarily like a common thread unless you've noticed something like that. I don't know.
4: Well, we did a bit of analysis and found that th- that the music, well, at least in terms of timbre changes through time more markedly than perhaps between different users. So so from one week to the next you'll notice a bigger difference than between different users within a week. Hmm. So I mean that would that would make sense if everyone's mixing their genes around mixing the, the gene pool around.
0: Yeah. Like if I had done this project over the course of one night versus seven weeks.
4: Yes, yes. Everything would have sounded much, much more the same. Much much uh more samey.
0: Yeah. So knowing the algorithms behind this, what do you think you're hearing in this composer quest family tree? that I might not be hearing?
4: Well, I'm not hearing very often recognizable traits from both parents. The, the child, you, you seem to have often chosen a child that's predominantly taking material from one parent rather than the other. And I've noticed that you, you, you hooked onto the some sort of smooth orchestral samples in the middle... By the end, you'd really hooked back onto the more harsh sounding uh sounds with a, a bit of a melody. But seven generations isn't really enough to, to really say much about what's... I mean, it's not a very long time in, in evolutionary right. <laughs> time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think... My method wasn't kind of unscientific. It was just all over the place of like, this one sounds the most interesting to me at the time. Mm -hmm. But there was one thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, In the sixth generation, I was presented with one possible mate that was just silence. Yes. Um, And I was wondering, how did that happen? Yeah. That silence got mixed in there.
4: Hmm. Oh, you looked at the and, waveform.
0: Yep. And it was from, uh, the username was silence100h. <laughs> and then I kept getting, in the next generation, there were like a bunch of things like bots. So I almost wonder if someone was spamming the site somehow.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, I, we actually welc- we would welcome people running bots against the site. Um <laughs> We tried that ourselves, just for stress testing the uh, the site huh. a couple of years a couple of years ago. But so yeah, if somebody wants to make a bot that attempts to evolve sp- specific kinds of loops, that would, I mean, that would be great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I was going to ask you: my score by the end of the game was eighteen. What does that number mean exactly?
4: So that's the number of times another user has chosen one of your tunes as a mate.
0: Okay. Do you notice during playing this that people have predisposition for certain things overall, like minor keys or noise or like beat-driven?
4: I can't really comment on that generally. There have been people interested in... Some people have been selecting very weird, minimal stuff, and my own personal preference is to select quite dense loops with rhythm and melody and bass trying to get the full complement of sounds from normal electronica but in general the rest of the users seem i don't know what <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what their rationale is but <laughs> yeah
0: well bob thanks again for making this Cool project, and thanks for coming on here to say hi and bye to my listeners.
4: Yep, thanks, everyone. I uh, hope you had fun with it. Do uh, send in any uh, thoughts or suggestions.
0: Yeah. All right. Great. Cool. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, thanks Ta- for hopping on here. Take care. Yep, you too. Bye. We'll see ya. There you have it. Insight from the Darwin tunes master himself. By the way, as of recording this, the hacker bots seem to have disappeared. So if you haven't yet, try the game out at darwintoons.org. I've played a couple of rounds of the Darwin Tunes game since the family tree that you've heard, and I had to resist the temptation to record every musical mate and child. It made me realize that deep down I'm kind of a musical hoarder. I didn't want all these cool little random loops to vanish into thin air. But I'm learning to appreciate the beauty of ephemeral music. Music that only you hear, and it's gone forever. It's come up a few times on the show, actually. Mike Olson talked about how using an old modular synthesizer is like a spiritual practice, since there's no save button, and just brushing up against the cables can change the sounds completely. My guest Torley described how music can be like Tibetan sand mandalas, where Buddhist monks create beautiful art out of colored sand, and then they blow it all away. Personally, I've often had the experience of hearing beautiful music in my dreams that vanishes when I wake up. I probably could go much further with this philosophical rant, but I should probably just cue the music and say goodnight to this Darwin Tunes segment. So please join me in blowing away the beautiful sand art that is All My Musical Children. Oh! And since you've been enduring seven episodes of this terribly cheesy theme song, I thought I'd do a little something special with it for this season finale. I'm happy to bring you another edition of...
3: Charlie's
0: Let's take a listen to this intentionally cheesy theme I made and try to analyze what makes it sound like a soap opera. I think the cheesiness of this music boils down to four main things. First, the piano. It's clearly synthetic, and the block chord accompaniment is pretty uninspired. The piano melody is simplistic, with a lot of lines that just go up and down the scale. And I think of it like wallpaper over the track, because it just keeps going without any breaks. Second, the drums are just a little too polished and shiny, and when they're paired with the piano, they sound extra synthetic. I also use a simple bossa nova type rhythm, perfect for elevator music. Third, the electric guitar has a classic 90s sound, with a chorus effect and a bend thrown in for good measure. Finally, the synth strings. They wouldn't be terrible in another song if they had more reverb and were buried in the background. But again, in the context of all the other instruments, they sound pretty terrible. So now that I had a cheesy and awful piece of music... I challenged myself to make it into something I'd actually want to listen to. I wasn't sure what that meant, but I knew that it would require changing the instruments and arrangement. Since most of my tracks were MIDI, it would be pretty easy to rearrange everything. My first target was the blocky piano accompaniment. Like John Brantingham was saying, it's never bad to start a composition using block chords, but eventually you'll probably want to replace them with more interesting rhythms and voicings. So in this case, I salvaged these boring chords by using a MIDI arpeggiation effect, set to make random arpeggios out of the chords. I also switched to a marimba sound for the heck of it. Next, I knew I wanted to split up the melody so one instrument wasn't playing the whole thing. If I'm feeling like a melody is too overbearing, I sometimes try making it into a call-and-response thing, so each instrument has space between their phrases. I tried doing this with flute and clarinet. I already like this better than the soap opera version but I felt like the melody was still going to sound cheesy no matter what instruments I used. So I decided to go with a genre that thrives on simple, playful melodies, chiptune music. While I was converting the instruments to plug chip sounds synths, I had a flash of inspiration to make the rhythm swung instead of straight. It just took a click of a button to change the arpeggios to a swung beat. For the melody, I kept the same call and response idea I used with the flute and clarinet, just with two chiptune instruments, and swung. I kept the same drum beat, just swung it, and replaced it with chip drums. The bass part was almost the same as my soap opera version, but with a little more space between the notes, and a few more notes on upbeats to keep the momentum going. Here's the original bass for comparison. one
3: again.
0: I think this chiptune track would need some fine tuning if I was actually going to use it in a video game. Listening back, the melody synths sound a little high-pitched and harsh but I think I succeeded in my mission to make this theme a little more listenable than the soap opera version. I hope you enjoyed this production lesson. Maybe someday you'll also try this challenge of transforming one of your songs into a completely different style. If you're interested in more production lessons like this one, visit composerquest.com cmpl or search for Charlie's Music Production Lessons in your podcast app of choice. Thanks again for listening, and now I'll play you my full chip tune track called all my chip tunes